Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 23. This evening in the New Testament Scriptures, Matthew chapter 23. And we will read verses 1 through 12 for the opening reading. Matthew 23. Verses 1 through 12. We'll probably go a little further than that into the chapter, but we'll start with verses 1 through 12. So, Matthew chapter 23, again, I'll begin reading at verse 1. And let us hear God's word. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called a rabbi by others. But you are not to be called a rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Amen. We'll end our reading there, and let's ask for God's help. Father in heaven again, to read your word here the voice of Christ, again, is, his word is powerful, refreshing it, it, awakens our spiritual senses and calls us to uh, follow you. And we thank you for the voice of the Good Shepherd, and we thank you for the power of the word. And I pray tonight that word would be life-giving as we hear it, we would hear the voice of God speaking in the scriptures that you would uh, break through. Uh, traditions of men or false teaching or the discouragement that might make us reticent to hear your word or to yield obedience to you and by the word, by the spirit, give life, bring glory to yourself, conform us to your image, and send us out as your people. And just know our gratitude that we have this word, a way of knowing you and that we have the triune God and that Christ the word has been revealed to us and that we can know him. Knowing him is eternal life. And we give you our thanks for these things. We pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the opposition between Jesus and the religious leaders has been growing for some time now. We've spent several weeks in these chapters where Jesus enters Jerusalem and begins to lay down the challenge to Israel as they're currently living out uh, their identity as the people of God. And that back and forth that we've seen, it's been building to a climax. We've seen short back and forth between chapters 21 and 22 between Jesus and the religious leaders. He challenges, they answer, they challenge, he answers, and back and forth it goes. Well, now that confrontation is going to 
spill out into a very long discourse here in Matthew 23. And it's been a little while since we've had one of these discourses. Matthew's well known for them. He seems to organize Jesus' teachings into blocks of discourse. Think the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, or all those kingdom parables there in Matthew 13. Been a little while since we had one, but now we find them again here towards the end of the gospel, and Matthew 23 is the one before us. A discourse against Israel's religious leaders. And by the way, that will then transition into Matthew 24 and 25, where Jesus announces judgment on Jerusalem and the temple. And those chapters get a lot of attention because they use apocalyptic end of the world language. They usually pique our interest as far as the future goes and, and prophecy. But when we get into them, we've gone through Mark 13 before, the parallel, but we'll see once again, they have a lot more to do with the judgment coming on Jerusalem than they do with the distant future and the return of Christ. And all that's preceded then by Matthew 23 here, the focus on the religious leaders. So the chief targets throughout this chapter more specifically are the scribes and the Pharisees. And there's probably a good bit of overlap between those two groups. It's not like one's on the left, one's on the right, and, and here I am in the middle between you two. Those two groups probably overlap quite a good bit. And again, we might wonder, okay, who were they? We, we, we've seen them several times, but once again, these are the groups in Israel that enjoy popular respect and authority, that they were recognized as experts in understanding and applying the law. And not only could they explain the law to you, not only could they apply the law to you, they knew the history of interpretation, you know, all the elaborations on the law that had now been passed down for several hundred years, they could school you in these things, the scribes and the Pharisees. And again, why target them? Well, again, this is your largest group amongst Israelites. So they're the self-appointed guardians. They're the arbiters. Again, going back a couple hundred years when they pushed out the foreign influence and purified the worship. They're protecting the nation. They're keeping religious observance pure. They're making sure that God is honored so that his curse doesn't fall on the nation. Once again, they're the self-appointed guardians of all matters of religious law and practice. Since they're the guardians, if Israel has lost its way, and that seems to be Jesus' point over and over again, you've gotten off track with living out your identity, with fulfilling your vocation, with obeying my law and doing what pleases me. Well, if they've gotten off track, then those leaders must bear the blame. And so Jesus addresses them and holds them responsible for a nation which has spiritually lost its way. Now some have asked, is Jesus' condemnation fair here? Or is Jesus' condemnation accurate? That's not necessarily arising from any quarter uh, that has a problem with Jesus or the accuracy of the word. It's just asking the question, okay, if what Jesus says is true, why were these people so popular? I mean, who likes a hypocrite, especially amongst the general population? That tends not to go very well. Why would these people, or Israelites, so readily embrace hypocrites? 
And of course, it will depend on how we define that word. Jesus uses the word hypocrite throughout. But it seems, and we'll try to prove this as we go through it, but it seems the sense in which he's using that word is not necessarily the conscious insincerity. I tell you one thing and just knowingly go and do something else, not even trying to be consistent. It's not so much conscious insincerity as a distorted perspective. So these folks think they are doing the will of God. While in reality, they are missing the main point. So those two realities don't measure up. What they think they're doing and what is actually happening. And I think a good passage to bear that out, not only this one, but would be the opening verses of Matthew 6, where they go and pray on the street corners, they, they pray for everyone to hear, and Jesus calls them hypocrites. Well, again, it's not that they're doing one, saying one thing and doing another. No. They're looking religious, but Jesus says that's not the main point. That's not what prayer is all about. So not so much conscious insincerity as it is what they think they're doing doesn't measure up to what God actually commands in his law. One commentator writes, The attitude attacked in this chapter is a religion of externals, a matter of ever more detailed attention to rules and regulations while failing to discern God's priorities. And again, I think it's, it's Matthew 12 or 15 is another good example of that. You know, through your tradition, you nullify the word of God. So you say, hey, if you give the money this way, God will be pleased, but then you're not taking care of your parents. You see, you've nullified the authority of God's word. You think you're doing something that's good, but it's just externals. It's not getting to the heart of what really pleases God. Again, another commentator writes, Many, perhaps most, scribes and Pharisees did indeed admirably fulfill their religious duties. If we look at someone like Josephus, a near contemporary of Jesus, that's how he describes the Pharisees. Yeah, these guys did what they commanded or what they said. So is Jesus' charge different? No, Jesus' charge is saying it's your understanding that's fundamentally flawed. And so that resultant zeal doing those things does more harm than good. So that's what we're going to see Jesus getting at tonight. That zeal, that misguided approach to God, in the end, does more harm than good. And by the way, lest we think here that, you know, Jesus, he, he's been gentle, he's been kind, and you know, Matthew, he, he's got Matthew 7, you know, judge not and, and look at the beam in your own eye. Well, he's just been saving all his bullets now so he can just unload his clip. We'll see when we get to verse 8, Matthew is actually following his own advice. And applying these things to his own church. The way verses 8 and following are written are addressing the readers of this gospel who would come later in which Matthew says, now we need to make sure that we are following this as well. We will have similar tendencies. And so we must make sure that we keep Jesus's uh, commands as well. So in light of all that, let's listen in then. Let's give our attention to what Jesus says to these religious leaders, we, we want to be able to spot uh, whatever tendencies might be in our own hearts so that we can fulfill our calling, so we can do our job as the people of God. So we get to we're not here in the temple, but we get to listen in on the conversation as Jesus issues this verdict 
on the religious leaders. It's easy to outline the chapter. You have the warnings first in verses 1 through 12. And then you have the woes in the rest of the chapter. Let's start tonight with the warnings, verses 1 through 12. Now again, as I just said, we're, we're not in the temple, we're, we're not hearing these words for the first time, but let's notice that the original audience is the same as what we've been seeing in the previous chapters. So we have chapter breaks in our copies of the scripture, but for most of the years of the church's existence, they didn't have those chapter breaks. So don't think, oh, new chapter, new place, same scene, same audience then most likely. The religious leaders that he's been sparring with are probably still present. I don't know if maybe eventually they got mad and left, but they're there at least at the outset. And so Jesus begins to address the crowds, his disciples, in this larger gathering here. And he begins by saying, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Now that is simply a figure of speech for Jesus saying, they teach authoritatively like Moses did, or they teach Moses with authority. They're trying to explain to you what the law of Moses means. So Moses gave you the law. Now they want to explain it. They want to apply it. Some have said that, you know, there's been archaeological evidence of a, a, what looks like a seat known as Moses' seat. There might be records of that. That may or may not be the case. That's not essential, I think, for backing up what Jesus says here. He says they, they sit in that seat of authority. I think in universities you have a chair you know, over different departments. They're going to tell you what Moses said, what he meant, and how you can apply it and live it out. So it's Jesus' way of saying they view themselves as the true successors. They're in line with that ancient authority of Moses and his tradition. So it's interesting then, knowing what we're, what's coming, you're, you probably have some familiarity with this chapter, knowing what's coming, the opening verses may surprise you. Jesus says, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. All right, is Jesus intending that we keep all these regulations and that we follow all these traditions? Some have, have come to this gospel and said, yeah, I mean, it sounds like Matthew is still operating within a very Jewish or maybe even a rabbinic Tradition that he, he saw those things as good for the church and that they needed to keep following those traditions. Others have come to Jesus' words here and said, Well, Jesus is saying, Do everything they tell you that fits the Bible, that fits the truth as we know. And that may be the case. I, I think that's a little bit of special pleading, maybe wanting Jesus' words to fit how we already understand truth. And tradition. Here's what I think is the best way to approach Jesus' words here. I think it's an ironic comment that is immediately overturned by the following statement. Here's what I mean. Jesus says, be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. In other words, when their teaching is put into practice, it harms people. It harms the cause of God. We'll see that in the following statements. So therefore, 
reject it. So I think it's Jesus' way of saying, oh yeah, you want to go out and do what they tell you? Well, just look at the fruit when it's put into practice. And you'll see that the whole thing needs to be gotten rid of. And so we can see up front a good test of the accuracy of a teaching, of any teaching, the value of what is taught to you. Look and see what it does to people. And look and see whether it makes them more or less like Jesus. Because unfortunately, there's been times where certain truths have been taught in such a way that what it's done to people has probably taken them farther away from Christ than closer to them. It's a good test of the accuracy of any teaching is to see what it does to people. And I'm gonna, I think we see that played out in Jesus' following words. Let's go next to verse 4. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Here's where we're beginning to see exactly what Jesus means. Is this conscious insincerity? Or is there a difference between what God wants and what these people teach? Verse 4 seems to imply that these teachers don't have any consideration for the problems their teaching generates. So they prescribe a certain way of life. But they don't seem concerned on the effect that has on ordinary people. So the way they lay down the law and their traditions, it could result in people struggling under the weight of a hugely expanded legal code. And that legal code enslaves rather than liberates those who follow it. So that's what Jesus is getting at. That's just his problem here is the way you teach the Old Testament and the traditions that you attach to it end up bogging people down rather than giving them life. And you contrast that with Jesus' own invitation back in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus says, you'll know the true teaching. Look at the effect it has on you. Is it heavy and cumbersome? Or is it life-giving and directing you to the Savior? And by the way, Jesus isn't just saying, hey, you know, don't listen to them because you know, they don't know what they talk about. They're, you know, they're just lazy scribes. No, lots of studies. Lots of debate went into formulating their, these rules. If the later documents are a good reflection of Jesus' time, the later rabbinic literature, there's a lot of history in all these debates. There's a lot of study. There's a lot of laying out all the sides and trying to get it right. But in the end, the result didn't help people. It caused trouble. It crushed them rather than giving life. And when you think of what John goes on to write in 1 John 5, 3, he says God's commandments are not burdensome. So there's another good measure of the accuracy of a teaching. Is it a burden or is it life-giving? Now Jesus goes on then in verses 5 through 7. He's kind of aimed at their teaching. He's taken aim at the results of their teaching. Now he's going to start going after the teachers themselves. And we see in verses 5, 6, and 7 
a preoccupation with appearances, verse 5, and reputation, verses 6 and 7. So first, verse 5, everything they do is done for people to see. And here's the example. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. Now, what are these ancient items? Well, the phylacteries were small leather boxes, and they would contain key texts from the law. And they would be worn on the forehead and the arm. And when you say, where did they get such an idea? They got it from Deuteronomy 6, 8, where God says, bind my word to your forehead and to your arm. Well, they took it quite literally. I think we could probably understand God there saying, my word should be in your mind and my word should guide your actions. But they said, let's find a way to actually apply this literally. Now, friends, again, understand, this is probably intended to help people. I got in someone's car one time and they had two Bible verses on metal plates taped to their car. And, and I, think they, I think they had the best of intentions. I'm not criticizing them at all. I think they would read those while they drove meditate on the truth, maybe it helped keep their temper when someone cut them off, and whatnot. I've heard people have little scripture verses over their TVs to help them use discernment when they choose what to watch. Are, are these aids intended to help? Probably. But Jesus is saying here, they end up being an opportunity for a religious show. Because maybe the box itself or the strap that fastens it to the arm or the forehead, well, they just start getting broader and broader and broader. And who knows how much they were trying to outdo one another in the size of their phylacteries. You see that guy coming, and you know, he takes the word seriously. Well, Jesus says that's a problem. He goes on and he says, and they also make their tassels long on their garments. Now again, what are these tassels? They are tassels on the corners of Jewish cloaks, which were required by Numbers 15 and Deuteronomy 22. In fact, Jesus probably had them on his own cloak. I think it's the woman with the issue of blood when, when she grabs him, or it's somebody in the Gospels, probably grabbing, based on the way the record reads, the, the tassels of his garment. They were very ordinary. They were very common. Again, God commanded them. And they were intended as spiritual aids, just reminders of who God was and what he had done for their people. But what do these folks start doing? Let's increase their length. Let's show just how much we care. And it draws attention to their piety. And Jesus says that's not the way it's supposed to be amongst your religious leaders. Verses 6 and 7 then don't need a lot of explanation. We've even seen language like that in some previous parables, parables, loving the place of honor, the most important seats, loving to be greeted in the marketplaces, and to be called rabbi. So they love the, the place of honor, and of course Jesus said, what, don't sit at the place of honor, sit lower, and then someone may call you up. It's right out of Proverbs. And again, it's interesting that the person's perhaps even motive, or at least the result, is what? They still end up at the place of honor. But Jesus says, you don't get there by seeking it yourself. You get there by taking the lower route and let God put you in that place, like he did with David and so many others throughout redemptive history. So don't seek out that honor. Don't seek out that preeminence. Don't seek out those titles. And then that then transitions to verses 8, 9, and 10, 
where Jesus begins to talk about these titles that they take. So let's give our attention there. But again, right before we look at the details, notice the shift in verse 8. But you are not to be called rabbis. So Jesus has kind of given it to the religious leaders. But then what does he say? But you. So now talking to his people. And Matthew records this in such a way where we are now the audience that needs to be listening to what Jesus says. Maybe that this gospel is probably written 40 to 50 years, if memory serves me correct, after the time of Jesus. So, so we've got a whole generation since Jesus and this gospel is being written. So there are churches in existence. Matthew could have been a pastor over one of those. Maybe already in his church. There are developing some of these tendencies. A, a concern for status and respect. And, and Jesus is, and Matthew is thinking, alright, these are appropriate words then uh, for me to pen for us to remember. What is Jesus saying here? Don't be called rabbi. Don't be called uh, father. And don't be called instructor. Now no one's ever called me rabbi. So I guess I'm safe, right? Well, we, we bring it into our context. Are we overly concerned with ecclesiastical titles? Are we overly concerned with academic titles? Got to make sure everybody knows all the hard work that went in there and that we get the respect and the recognition uh, that is coming our way. No, Jesus says, don't even use the title rabbi. And, and another way of understanding rabbi could simply mean teacher. Rabbi and disciple. Teacher and learner. And Jesus says, you don't need anyone to call you teacher. Why? Because Jesus is the teacher. So, so there's a way in which Jesus is exalted and God's people enjoy equality. Jesus says, don't be greeted with rabbi, for you have one teacher, Jesus exalted, and you are all brothers. Equality among the congregation. Now, Paul and Ephesians, for, here's the question, is this absolute? I mean, if you, if you were to call uh, your pastor teacher, uh, you would be sinning or going against Jesus' words. It is possible that Jesus intends a qualified application of his words. Paul in Ephesians 4.11 does say that the gifts God has given his church include pastors and teachers. Are you allowed to actually recognize, hey, you're, you're holding that office you're fulfilling that office. I think we could see a qualified, appropriate use of that language. However, make no mistake, let's err on the side of, of obeying Jesus. Since he recognizes that the, the church is to operate in such a way that he will be exalted and that his people will enjoy equality. Again, you are all brothers. Same thing goes on in verse 9, referring to our access. To the Father. So call no one on earth your Father. Why? Because you have one Father and He is in heaven. So, Father, probably here, uh, a title for some kind of authoritative teacher. I don't think Jesus is saying you can't call your dad Father. That seems to be natural, familial language. I think the context here is definitely implying this is some kind of religious title. Now again, could there be a qualified use here? Well, Paul speaks of his role as a spiritual father twice in his letters. He never takes that title, though he refers to his role in bringing other people to birth uh, spiritually. So maybe some kind of qualified use. But again, what is Jesus emphasizing here? 
You have access to the Father. You have access to the Heavenly Father. So make sure that nothing ever diminishes that. That the way the teachers in your assembly function never interferes with your access to the Heavenly Father. And then the last thing comes in verse 10. Nor are you to be called instructors. Again, that's one who leads the way, a mentor figure. Someone who would shepherd and guide spiritually. And why shouldn't we call anyone instructor? Because Jesus says, I am your Messiah. I'm your instructor. I'm your Savior. I'm the shepherd of Israel. I alone, Jesus is saying, can ultimately fulfill these roles. So, people of God, you got close contact with me, Jesus is saying. You have close contact with your Father, You have close contact with the Spirit. So the way church functions and leadership functions should never interfere with that, and nor should it create this sense of, well, those people in the assembly are close to God, and those people are far away. Not so among you, Jesus says. And then lastly, in verses 11 through 12, he says, The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humble. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Again, familiar sayings of Jesus that we've seen previously in the gospel. They they just summarize, they encapsulate, they they capture Jesus' repeated assault on any sense of pomp and self-importance. Again, they, they reinforce this portrait of Jesus as the leader of his people and his disciples as this community of little ones. Remember back in 18, don't, Matthew 18, don't, don't prevent those children from coming to me. All of you must become like me if you want to be my disciples. So those are the warnings. And I think looking at the time, we'll, we'll simply focus on those warnings this evening. We could begin to wade into the woes, but we'd only look at uh, the first words that Jesus begins to say. But, but what do we take away from this tonight. Again, I think it's worth asking, do we see anything in our own hearts that resembles this? Again, it's easy to be like, yeah, the Pharisees were the bad guys and Jesus goes after them. I can think of a few traditions where they call someone father. You know, Jesus is really going after them. Let's just start with ourselves. Is there anything in my own heart that might resemble this? A valuing of some above others in the body. A sense of distance from the Lord. Because I'm I'm leaning too much on human figures, whereas God invites us to this open access. Maybe maybe a a love for certain kinds of teaching, but the results aren't matching uh, what Jesus says they should match. And that would be my second question of of application. Do I see the traits, especially in those opening verses, in any teaching I hear, that, that the effect is burdensome, that the effect is, is, is ultimately harmful in people. If you see those traits, then reject the teaching, because it's not of Jesus, and it's not of God. It's not of the way of grace that he has given to us. So let's give thanks for that tonight. Let's ask for God's help. Father in heaven, thank you that we have access to the Father in heaven. That we should not be quick to call anyone, any teacher on earth, Father, because you're our Father, and you are in heaven. 
We think of that prayer that you taught your disciples to pray, and us, your people, your disciples, pray that, that you are our Father, and you are in heaven. So thank you for the access we have. We can call you the Father, that we can draw near to you, and that we can know that grace. I pray that be a lived experience among your people this week, that they would know your presence with them, that they seek you, that you'd be their teacher, that you'd instruct us in the Spirit of God, and you would show us wonderful things out of your word. And Lord, help us to discern the priorities from your word. What, what from your word? What, how, how can we rightly understand your word so that it's life-giving, so that it brings us to the Savior who is gentle, so that it doesn't burden people down with heavy loads, especially when those loads aren't helped and when they don't take us more to be like you in the Heavenly Father. So thank you for your truth. Thank you for the way it speaks to us. Send us now out with your blessing. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.